for our scripture reading and prayer to get today. Let's respond in thanksgiving to the offerings the Lord has provided for us. If you would join me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As we continue our journey through First Peter, we move to chapter 2 today. We'll be in the first three verses of chapter 2, if you would hear the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Lord, we look forward to hearing from your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for its power. We thank you that the Spirit uses it in our hearts, and in our lives, Lord, that it doesn't return void. And so we pray, Lord, that we would receive it. We wouldn't turn away from it. It wouldn't have a hardening effect on our lives and our hearts today, Lord, but we would receive it gladly. Lord, might be with Pastor Adam as he proclaims it to us, Lord. Might um, the things that he has prepared to say, the thoughts in his mind, might they be delivered powerfully by your spirit. And might he have boldness, freedom, and wisdom in proclaiming your word. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You be seated. So as we continue with our time in First Peter, I want to remind you, just as I did a few weeks ago with you as we were looking at an earlier portion of chapter 1, but now as we jump into chapter 2, Peter continues with the same kind of patterning that he set forward and we talked about a few weeks ago. And I, I want to encourage you with this thought, and we, we talk about it often when we're in narratival instruction, whether it be the Gospels or somewhere perhaps in Acts or uh, outside the New Testament, the Old Testament sections, the narratives, when we were in Genesis for a season of time studying origins. Remember, when you're, when you're as a student of Scripture and you're sitting down to read, um, remember things are structured in a way that it's not just the thought that something is being said. Right? It, it's, it's not just data points. Remember, it's not just that something is said, but rather pay attention to how it is said. It, it's said in a form. It's said in good order. And that order, even, of the instruction is to have its impact on you as you would receive it. So you'd receive the instruction in your life of growth or your life in Christ for nourishment and your faith regarding the promises of redemption they come to you in good order so that as you progress in your Christian experience, uh, you're not putting the cart before the horse and experiencing a negative effect. And what I mean by that is just once again to pick up with you that he continues here as we jump into chapter 2. Peter continues to structure his exhortation to us in a way which will continually remind us if we take time to pay attention. If we sit down and read 1 Peter in devotional thought this week, we just think, I'm going to try and read the book in a half hour's time. And I pay attention to how he's teaching me the gospel and its implications. 
You will teach it to me as I read and give myself to it to, in such a way as to continuously remind me as a Christian that I am united to Christ for justification and renewal. And, and again, it, it's, it's the way in which he structures the instruction to me to remember first fruits of my life and meaning and nourishment and flourishing is redemption. The thought of Christ dying for me is of first importance in my life if I am to continue to persevere. We never move away from the gospel. We, ne we, ne we don't get it at first and then move on to more important things. It is that need to continuously renew our minds upon the truth of the gospel. We are united to Christ, as Peter even instructs us, first and foremost, for redemption. But we must never forget, we get all of Christ and all of his benefits, meaning we are united to him by faith for redemption and renovation. As I've mentioned before, and I'm introducing now, understanding the proper ordering of our life and faith could not be more important. We mustn't take it for granted and hit the fast-forward button in our reading and simply think we're reading data talking points. Maybe we'll get something, but we must rightly order our life in the faith, truly grasping who we are in Christ. By grace and not by performance is the only way. I insisted this with you maybe four weeks ago now, but, I, but as, I, as we jump back into his instruction on ethics in chapter 2, I wish to remind you, and I'll show you the thought flow in just a moment, but please lay this to conscience. Truly grasping who you are in Christ by grace, not performance, is the only way to avoid disillusionment, burnout, and fatigue in your pursuit of righteous living. I trust each of us, even by common grace, those even outside of Christ have a sense of the need to do right by others. There's some measure of impulse through common grace and moral law. Someone has the feelings of performance. I want to do toward neighbor. Or if I don't, I feel bad I didn't toward neighbor. There's this measure of morality even given by the moral law and conscience to each one. But beware, as a Christian, if we simply perform righteousness in our own efforts, we will experience disillusionment from the faith. You will experience spiritual burnout. And if you, haven't, if you have, I wish to renew you this morning and strengthen you in the encouragements to rightly order your faith, whereby the grace of Christ fuels your obedience. Again, notice how Peter, it, I'm not suggesting this as a way to theologize or a way to order your faith that's more helpful to you. I'm saying it, this is what Peter is instructing us in, that the right sense of redemption will empower renovation. Notice how he did it in the structure of the exhortation in the same manner. Look up with me, before we do uh, chapter 2, 1 through 3, just notice how he's built his case. And, and I'll just jump up on the same page of your text. You'll see it beginning in verse 18. Again, how are we to then get to verse 1 of chapter 2 that says, so put things away from you. How are we supposed to get there? By reading chapter 1 rightly. 
What is that? Well, how are we to live our life fearfully reverent of the Lord? What are we supposed to be empowered by in our life of progression? Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. Again, the sense of grace will fuel gratitude. This, once again, is the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's reason behind it because it's a faithful summary of the teachings of Holy Scripture. Your life is structured to you. By constant re going over it and over and over again. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And, and this is not because it's like helpful, but it is taught as a summary of Scripture's teachings. Guilt, I know it. I'm aware of it. Grace comes to you in the name of Christ through union. And then that sense of knowing that I was ransomed fuels my gratitude. This is the progression of your life in Christ. What, what, what further? Just jump down and look at verse 19. What other promise comes to me to fuel my life so that by the time I hit chapter 2, verse 1, I can hear the words from a pastor say to me, put these things away. So when Peter, as a minister, speaks to me this morning, Adam, put these things away. I'm able. My pump is primed because I know that I'm ransomed. And then when I think of these silly, dumb, and sinful behaviors, I need to remember, I was ransomed, not with perishable things. That, that, needs to, that, that, that sense of knowledge needs to fuel gratitude and put these things away from me. This is how it's done. Look further in verse 19. Again, not know that you were ransomed, not with futility, but precious blood. Again, not, not just a precious blood as a lamb without spot and blemish, but the precious blood as if a lamb without spot or blemish, which is the precious blood of none other than Christ. It, 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 it should shrink my desire for aberrant behavior and help me hate it. And also notice verse 21. We're believers now in God. Who raised Jesus from the dead. And all of this is in my life so that my faith and hope is in God. He has ransomed me. I went from a place in my life of no hope and no peace. I filled my life with other things that were returning more negativity to my own self. Bringing me further from hope, farther from peace, and a sense of sorrow. And regret. I had this at the center of my gravity in my life, and God delivered me from it. And He gave me in its place hope and peace. So now, as this believer, birth of God by His mercy, whereby I can access hope that's meaningful to me and peace that will fill my home, I ought look with gratitude in my ethics. Again, verse 22, he reminds you that by chapter 2, verse 1, put these things away. He's told you, verse 22, that you have been experiencing purification in your soul by the obedience to the truth. My soul has been purified. 
And then he tells you this important instrument in your life whereby these things have come through the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's important that you get this portion right. I said to you just a moment ago, we never leave the gospel. You believe that, I believe that. I'm here simply just to say what you already know, to refresh you in it, and you refresh me in it. We never leave it behind. And then we need to remember, well, how can we not leave it behind? How will it ever be before us? How can we, how, how can we avoid leaving the gospel behind? Well, maybe we should ask ourselves, how did the gospel come to us at the first? How did we hear it the first time? How did the Holy Spirit use it as an instrument? So conceive of your mind, a great carpenter at work, needing a tool of some accessible kind whereby he might effect change upon some sort of member. What would he do? Well, then you'd think, grasping a tool as an instrument of change. Think of the Holy Spirit, whereby he takes a tool and affects change upon the members of your body. How does he do so? Through the instrumentality of the preaching of the word of God. This is the centrality of the Christian faith, is preaching. This is how he has affected change in you. This is how you will not leave it behind, and you will continue to progress by sitting under and with and in the place of preaching of the word. Notice how he says it. All of this came to you. Uh, verse 20, 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and, and abiding. It's alive. It's abiding. The word of God. And then in case you doubt the efficacy of this word and its potency for, for the life and faith that is to come in the hardships and the temptation between the flesh, the devil, and the world, this, this, this unholy trinity, which you are up against in your progress as a pilgrim. So if you doubt, how will I be aided? Paul told you, remember, put on the armor. What armor is that? The armor of the word of God. Well, won't it fade away? You don't understand. Times are more difficult. 2019 might as well have been 1981 at the race, the, at the pace that we move. The world is so rapidly changing. Uh, what about that? No, 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 don't get it wrong. The word of God is living. It's abiding, but for how long? Forever. This we believe by faith. In this he reminds you for your pilgrim's journey. Look, all flesh is like grass. You, you know that, I know that. We're all fading away. I turned 40 this year. I know my flesh is like grass. You know that. You're progressing in life. We all know that. We, we know this. Yes, right. So he draws an analogy that is helpful. In the quotation of scripture, all flesh is like grass. All of its glory like the flower of the grass. I mean, you love the lawn and it's gone. The grass withers. The flower falls. You know this. But use it as an analogy to anchor your faith in the superiority of the word of God. The word of the Lord in contrast. It remains forever. So the same word that came to you, he says, verse 25 at the very conclusion. This word which I'm telling you remains forever. It's the means whereby you were birthed, and it's the means whereby you as a pilgrim will make it to the finish line. Is the word of the Lord. It is, more particularly, the good news. Not the bad news. The good news that was preached to you. 
again, these are all gifts. If you, if you walk through that text and take your time and just mull over what, what he said, even at the very introduction of chapter 1, and just read through chapter 1, just read it over, you will be overwhelmed at the thought of the provisions, not the requirements, but the provisions of the gospel. You see, as I said just a moment ago, you received through the preaching of that gospel and the birth of renewal, the repentance that was brought about by grace and the resting of the vessel of faith that was gifted to you back right in terminating into Jesus Christ, this redeeming relationship whereby you fled hopelessness and war and you entered into hope and in peace. You receive in that moment, not part of Christ, but all of him. You receive all of his redeeming qualities and all of his renovative categories. He, through the power of his spirit, will renew your life in sanctifying fruit. And it's this sense of sanctification or this ongoing walk as a pilgrim. It's this all of life to which Peter now turns. Let me give you just a small piece of introduction here regarding this life of sanctification. Michael Horton is helpful here. He says this, quote, we are united to Christ for justification and renewal. These must be distinguished, but never separated. I want you to hear this last portion of what he says. Saving faith is not the enemy of good works, but their only possible source. Let me just read that one more, one more time, and then I'm going to cite a text, and then we'll move forward into chapter 2, verse 1. We are united to Christ for justification and renewal. You have to get this together. And you're thinking right now in your life of sanctification, how are you progressing as a pilgrim? Do you think it's an issue for you as a pilgrim? We are united to Christ for justification and renewal. These must be distinguished, justification and renewal. They must be distinguished, but never separated. Saving faith is not the enemy of good works, but their only possible source. Again, if we put the cart before the horse, we will without a doubt experience disillusionment, burnout, and fatigue in the faith, if we're in the faith at all. As our Lord said, and I give you this citation, as you know it very well, but Matthew 7, verse 18 and 19, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, right? The, the, the tree itself cannot bear bad fruit. If it's healthy, it just can't do it, right? So a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. You know this, right? So use natural law, use God's creation as an analogy to your life in the faith. It is that straightforward. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. What is the summary of the matter? He adds, thus you will recognize them. The trees, the people, you will recognize them. How? By their fruits. A healthy tree will 
again, in varieties of kinds and sizes, but will inevitably bear forth good fruit. It just will. It can't be stopped. Now, again, it may be different in kind than the other variety of tree and of a different scale of other trees in the forest. This, too, is part of the mystery of God, whereby he grants gifts of faith and grace greater in some than others. This is all to his glory and to his praise. But there is no doubt that as a tree which is rooted in union to Christ, that tree will bear fruit. It's of law, necessity. So we could simply summarize the the concept this way. Faith is the root of our fruit. That's why it's important to get the categories rightly ordered. Faith is the root of my fruit. So, so, So Peter says, yes, that's why I wanted to tell you, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who birthed you into this. And and that birth and that knowledge and that purification will, as you rightly conceive of it, it will produce gratitude. It will. It will of necessity, believer. But lest we rest on our laurels, where we simply say, right, it's inevitable. I belong to union in Christ. Therefore, just step back, everybody, and watch my fruit roll. We may be like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. There is due diligence in the life of the Christian. It is flowing forward that we put up certain hedges and certain standards whereby fruit can be produced. We would do what's called due diligence in our life of faith. This is simple. It's required. You know that because you're cognizant, indeed, of union to Christ, but of your enemy who seeks to undo you. The world, your own flesh, and the devil himself, Ephesians 6. Being wary of these enemies of yours, you know you must have your game face on. You you can't just sit back and be like, well, you know, it's not my bag. The spirit is at battle. Whoa, 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 whoa. You will be deceived, and you will be in a crash accident in your life of faith. So Peter says, as those who possess faith, again, because faith indeed is the root. We don't leave the gospel behind. We don't, we don't, we don't. But we act upon it, and faith is that root. So as those who possess faith then, start now, and and think right now, if you were just birthed anew, just say, right now. And now you're keen on, the, on chapter 1. You know what's the imperishable seed that's renewed you, the faith that's been birthed in you, the way in which God has given you hope and peace. You know this now. Peter then says to you, then start putting things away. This is what he says to you. And not, not as someone who doesn't, isn't in the faith, but someone in the faith. Start now. What's next for me, Peter? Start putting things away from you. Things that are becoming of your status. Notice verse 1. So, right, there's the thought connective that gives way from chapter 1's redeeming qualities, those gratuitous gifts from God that just are generous provisions, not requirements, but because there's such generous provisions through the preaching of the word that has come to me, I need to then act. So, as this person put away all malice, 
Put it away. Put away all the sea and hypocrisy and envy and, let me just say, also all slander. Put it away. Simply put, Peter begins to teach us what the works and fruits of a Christian life should be. You know this. You could read it. You have read it. You know that's what he's getting at. But I want to ask a question a little more pressing this morning. I want to push us just a little bit to think about the text so as to avoid disillusionment, burnout, and fatigue. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know how hard it is to put away malice. Again, we, we can say yes, indeed, and, and these seem like really nasty categories. But if you really just kind of think about them, they're rather subtle. They can be. And we can be entangled in them. He, he didn't pick hard-to-think-through categories. He probably took the averages. In other words, people struggle with this. You struggle with this. I struggle with this. So the issue is how, though? Peter says, so, as a Christian, Adam, put malice away. Okay, yes, I should, indeed. But I want to ask myself, how? So I'm asking you this question, and we'll think about it for, the, for just the next few moments. What does it mean to put things away? So, so he told you to, you want to, and now the question is, how to? I mean, obviously, you know the answer in some measure. To put things away simply means put them away. Adam, you might be pressing a little too hard, a little too far. It's otherwise Captain Obvious. Put things away. I do it every day in my house. Put it away from you. You know the idea. Or simply relocate them. They're here. Now let's relocate them to there. That put them away from us. Indeed, it is somewhat obvious. But more specifically, I really do think we need to ask and meditate just for a couple of moments. How do you or how do I, if you're to jot it down and think it through and meditate upon the thought of the text? Because indeed, we want to be in obedience to it. How do I as a Christian put something like malice away from me? How do I do that? How do I go about, like right now, I know that I have animosity toward my uh, uh, neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be. I know that I have animosity toward them. I look at them, I'm annoyed with them, I undercut them, I undermine them, I don't communicate with them. What, whatever the web of relationship is that you are engaged in these people, persons, whatever relations. Let's just pick one category and we'll just add each category into the same construction of how you'd put each one away. You wouldn't attack one sin necessarily different than the other because we're talking more generally. How would we attack it at all? So let's say I have animosity or I have the intention and the desire to do evil. I need to ask myself, how do I as a Christian put something like this evil or this intention, animosity, how do I put it away from me? And again, I say this is a serious question because it gets at the heart of perseverance. You're a Christian. A, a, a tremendous means of your perseverance is contained here. And yet this portion of your perseverance is in this daily habit of putting things away. Perseverance requires, and I want, I, I want you to, to, to sense this, and, and I assume you do, but please lay it to conscience afresh. Perseverance requires you, Christian, to do due diligence in spiritual warfare. Again, if you need a refresher on just what you're up against, 
And I don't think we think about it enough. We really don't. I know I don't. I implicate myself in this 110%. We, we really don't think enough about the spiritual and cosmic powers of evil that seek to do us harm. If you take time to read Ephesians 6 and lay it to conscience, I mean meditate on it, read it, seriously, read it. And then I think there will be some sobriety added to your life on the thoughts of what I need to do to make it to the end. Because it's, it's not a trite little thing, like if I just mute the commercials, all is well. I mean, there's serious danger. Paul suggests even more so. Read Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare. Yet due diligence, and this is what I want to push on just for a moment, due diligence by means of intestinal fortitude is not enough. So if you answer the call of Peter in verse 1, so put away, Adam, all malice, and I say, okay, I'm going to. I'm just done with malice. I'm done with it. I, 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 I am no longer going to have animosity toward my neighbor. It will last maybe five minutes until I have to see that neighbor the first time. And then I'll be refreshed and why I have animosity to them, and it'll kind of continue to fray at the edges. So again, I want to do so, yet in fact, if I try to do so by merely pulling up my bootstraps with intestinal fortitude and grit to make it through perseverance to put away animosity towards my neighbor, it will in fact put me in greater peril. How so? Well, let me say it will lead to other disabling sins. Let me give you two of them. If we took this text and we just said, I'm going to do it, I'm leaving this church and I will never have malice again. Or whatever you have right now in your heart in a particularized relationship and a sin that attends to it. Jealousy, pride, whatever you have. Uh, faithlessness, down, all the vices that all of us as sinful people carry. If you say to that one particular sin that seems overwhelming in your life and you're like, today I'm going I'm to start afresh and I'm never going to do it again. I'm warning you, that will lead quite, um, not, I can't guarantee it, but I would just about guarantee it. It's going to lead to two other problems that will disable your life of sanctification. Number one, self-sufficiency. This is something you need to be concerned about in your spiritual life. What do I mean by self-sufficiency? Spiritual pride and measures of your own sanctifying achievements. It's just going to, it's another pitfall that's hard to avoid. If you bootstrap yourself into sanctification and you say, all right, I'm done with it, just watch carefully and prayerfully over your pride that will rise in your heart when you measure yourself in achievements. Self-sufficiency is something to be avoided in, in progressive sanctification. Number two, the other uh, fact of intestinal fortitude leading to another disabling sin in my life that will put me over the rails yet again, number two is self-sabotage. Uh, the, the effort that is employed is... Uh, it's a self-manner of sabotaging your own perseverance. How so? And I think this one touches us as well. I thought of these two because I experience them regularly. I imagine you do too. It's universal. I'm no different than you and you're no different than me. I'm simply speaking to fellow Christians. This is the truth of the matter. Uh, uh, there's spiritual pride and achievements and then there's self-sabotage and trying to achieve them in the first place. Why? Because there will inevitably be failure. It's not like, well, I might not fail. Yes, you will. And the burden to bear in your failures of self-sufficiency is spiritual doubt. You will begin to lack faith. You will begin to doubt your union to Christ. But it's set on by your self-sabotaging efforts of personal perseverance without the aid of the Spirit. 
you will, and I've counseled a handful of folks in this same setting, you will experience spiritual burnout, disillusionment, and fatigue in your Christian life. You will. You'll be like, I just can't. I'm, you know, this is not for me. I can't be those kind of people. That, that kind of thinking is toxic, and it will occur when you decide to sanctify yourself. Because you're right. You're not that kind of person. No one is. Again, when you see Peter calls you to put away sin, he's calling you to be clear, though. I want you to understand, and we're going to get to it here in just a moment. He is calling you to fight sin actively. What do I mean by fighting sin? Like if he says, put away malice, put away deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What does he mean? He means crack down on bad habits. Crack down on them. You have to do that. You do. Uh, again, I think we, we need to be careful more globally in, in, in downplaying the effectiveness of habits. You watch your habits. We, we too quickly in our generation and time in life, uh, we too quickly psychologize our way into saying addiction. Maybe, maybe. But before we jump there, how about we look at habit and the power that it has in your life? We downplay habit forming. We accelerate over to addiction categories. Why do we do that? Because it, it takes the pressure valve in my insides and goes, and just, like, it allows me to catch some oxygen and breathe. I do that as a strategy to not bear the guilt of my own behavior. Remember, habits, uh, what is it? Um, sow a habit, reap a character. That's real. It's better if we speak of things in our own life, vices that we face. The, 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 the danger is, hey, beware, this is habit forming. Uh, so, again, simply put, Peter strikes a blow here in the, verse 1 at the common vices that are prevalent among us. If we're right, uh, if we're honest with ourselves and we, we, we're... Uh, fair before the Lord, that would truly check me and see if there remain any unclean portions within me. And we are sincere. We will find these vices there. We know that we are prone to indulgence in them. And again, you can think of them, well, I, I don't have malice. You, you, you do. You do. It just might not be the vocab that you attach to a certain motivation or a certain measure of wrath and anger towards someone. Just think through these categories broadly, and again, I think we see that we are prone. Each one of us are prone to indulge in these behaviors, and therefore we must, as Peter says, put them away. That means you need to labor to put that thing away from you. It will not be easy, and you do need to strive to do it. But I close here in just a moment with asking the same question. It, but now I hope to provide an answer that is helpful. Because I do want you to understand, you do have to fight for your perseverance. You, you do have to strive for it. You have to wrestle. You, you have to put on armor. You have to change your habits. You need to recognize when a habit is forming. And be like, ooh, uh, you know, hmm. You need to be thoughtful. You have to fight. But the question is how? How do I as a Christian rightly put away the sins which so easily entangle me and dishonor God? I know I have sins that easily entangle me. I could list 10 of them right now, given my own personality profile. The way that I am cut from the cloth of my mom and dad, 
I have this constitution, this constitution, which is different than your constitution, which is different than your constitution, and maybe it's generally broadly shared, but there's particulars to each one of us based on time, space, history, family, education, etc., that we have certain burdens we bear. And those burdens and sins and vices find their way in certain outlets. They easily come to me. They beckon me to pay homage, to indulge in. They easily, as the writer of Hebrews says, entangle me. And they dishonor God, so how can I put them away? Through the spiritual exercise of a two-fold program. Think of this godly tandem. Here's the answer, I hope, and I'll show you from the text in just a moment. Here's the godly tandem we need in our life. A stop and a start. Through the spiritual exercise of stopping and starting. What do I mean? To stop. The stop must come first. That's why he tells you, put it away. Stop doing it. Put this away from you. The stop must come first. What do we mean by stop? Fight sin that entangles your life. Change bad habits. Fight the sin. You, you, just, you, you, you know this. I know this. We just need to be reminded of it. You are responsible for your behavior. You need to stop bad ones. And, and, and look at the categories of verse 1 and consider them in their full bloom. They have many angles, many tentacles. You bear the weight of them. Put that away. You have to fight it. The principle here is, and I, wanna, I want you to consider this principle with me. Lay it to conscience. The principle of fighting sin, the stop, do what it takes, period. Do what it takes. I will give you one small example, and I'll give you the last answer, and we're done for the morning. But, the, but I'll give you one example. I was talking with a minister about a difficult young man's situation in college. I want to read to you his response. And then in the reading of the response, I want you to think, have I ever thought like this before? And then think to yourself, if you haven't, why not? Ready? I'll read you. We're in the conversation about a difficult set of circumstances of a young man. But it cuts across genders. Just think of it. The answer is this. If accountability softwares, you know where this is going. If accountability softwares like Covenant Eyes don't work, then get rid of the internet or the devices. If one can't get away from Wi-Fi since he's in college, um, then he should probably get rid of his computer and his smartphone. I lived without a computer my junior and senior years in college. I wrote all my papers on library computers. So it can be done. If someone insists that he cannot uh, do college without a computer... But it is also true that he can't overcome his porn addiction with a computer. Then he should drop out. Overcoming a porn addiction comes before getting a college degree. In the hierarchy of goods... Have you ever placed your sanctification that high? W would your calculus about perseverance, when Peter told you, you know, wait, wait, stop, stop. You know you were redeemed 
with imperishable seed. Right? Stop. You know you were born again. Washed in conscience clean. As with a lamb without spot or wrinkle. But, but it's not a lamb. It's with the precious son of God. You, you know that, right? And you're like, yeah, I, I do. It, it's great. But I have a hierarchy of goods that I have adopted from the world around me. And my college education and credentialing is much higher than that blood that's cleansed me. You don't, you don't understand the way we got to organize. Finally, the start. So we're stopping and we're starting. What will we start? Uh, Peter covers it finally in verse 2 and 3. Uh, um, the start is desire the word of God. Desire it. Pray that you will increase in your desire of it. God will grant your desire. Desire the word of God. Look at verse 2. So when he tells you to put things away, he's telling you to do it. And he's referencing you're putting it away because he's reminding of you once again of your status. Verse 2, like a newborn baby. Why does he use the reference like infants? Well, if you jump up in verse 23, since you've been born again. So, so now that you've been born again, as a newborn baby, it longs for the milk from its mother. Uh, even in nature, animals longing for the, the milk of their mothers. This is just easy and obvious. Like that baby, long. Instead of acting out in avarice, or malice, deceit, hypocrisy, acrimony, slander, gossip, hatred. Oh, instead of doing that, acting, long for something different. Long for what? What will help me? Long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it, you will grow. How will I grow in, in understanding that I was ransomed from the futile ways? I, I have the precious blood of Christ in me. I have faith and hope that are in God. My soul has been purified. How will I grow up into that? By longing for the word. By longing for the pure spiritual milk. That by it, you will grow. You'll put these things away. You'll grow up into salvation. But, but how do I know I will? If indeed you have tasted already, if you're a newborn, if you belong to him, if you've already tasted that he's good, be assured that as you long for the pure spiritual milk, you will grow. You see, as those who have been born spiritually by this word, we are to fight sin and our awful habits by pursuing more of this word. It was the instrument whereby you were given faith in the beginning. And it's the same instrument that will give you faith and perseverance. The principle here, this is enclosed, the principle that attends to the start of desiring is that holiness comes through the word of truth. That, that, that's how we'll get there. Even if it just be holiness that went from here but it's hard fought, and it went to here. Did you see I did move it, believe it or not? Sometimes sanctification is like that. But it's still meaningful. We're growing. Getting the right hierarchy of priorities in our lives. Let's pray. Father, help us to be those people that put away and that we add, that, that you'd help us 
um, we, we all know who we are. And that's why we have the church. We have one another. So thank you for Lord's Day, an opportunity to help each other, be renewed, be strengthened, encouraged with one another. And so, Lord, may you add your blessing to our gathering. May you add the, the instrumentality of the word by your Holy Spirit into our life. And please help us take stock who we are, how we're behaving, and who we love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.